In John chapter 17, verse 17, in the high priestly prayer of Jesus, he said these words in his petition for the people of God. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. I want to ask you, how much does truth mean to you? How much do you want to be biblical? Are you willing to test your traditions against Scripture? And when you find out what Scripture says, to believe what Scripture says rather than your tradition. Some people react by saying, well, I don't have any tradition. Well, to quote uh, a man called Dr. James White, the people who have the most tradition, most enslaved to their traditions, are those who don't believe they have any. We all have our traditions. Whether we are coming to the Bible for the first time or the th uh, 10,000th time, we have a way of thinking and we expect to find that when we read our Bibles. We come with preconceptions. I want to believe, and I believe the true child of God, wants to believe in the true God and the true gospel. I believe the biggest need in the church at large is this. What the church needs more than anything is God as he really is and the gospel as it really is. And if one of these is distorted, and so is the other. When it comes to tradition, I don't think there's any real doubt that in the realm of the doctrine of the love of God, we have much in the way of tradition. And we need to, as Bible-believing Christians, embrace all that the Bible says. There's a concept out there that's quite prevalent that speaks of the unconditional love of God. You ever heard that phrase? I'm sure you've heard the concept. God loves you just the way you are. He loves you unconditionally. Now, when the unregenerate person hears that, he thinks, great, God loves me through and through. Great, I love me too. I've heard preachers say something akin to this. If God has a refrigerator, your picture is on it. He loves you. He really loves you. Have you noticed as you read through the book of Acts and you see the preaching of the apostles and uh, Stephen and you see the preaching in the book of Acts, I, I remember reading through it and looking for the love of God was absolutely amazed to find that there's not one mention of the love of God. Now, don't misunderstand me. It's right to speak about the love of God, but I'm making the point that that was not the emphasis. When you can't find that in the preaching in the book of Acts, it's true to say that wasn't the emphasis. One man said the emphasis is on the, red, on the wrong syllable. <laughs> you know, we have our preconceptions and it's certainly right to speak about the love of God, but we need to rightly understand the love of God. Is the love of God unconditional? Again, when the unregenerate person hears that, he thinks, great, uh, he loves me as much as I do. I, 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 I'm glad for that. God has a wonderful plan for my life. Well, that's great. I've got a wonderful plan for my own life. That's, that's great. He's on board. We've got to sort through the Bible 
on the love of God. And I have to make this admission. There's a sober truth regarding the love of God. And I want to ask that question again. Do you, do I, do all of us really want to know God as he really is? Because in the realm of this doctrine, our traditions are really going to stand out like sore toes. We, we really have to work through it. You see, if that picture is right, that God has, if he has a refrigerator, your picture's on it, and God's love is unconditional, that message, the message being conveyed is that you don't have to repent. Why? Because that would be a condition, right? To be right with him. Yeah, repentance is a condition. Jesus said, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Those are the words of Jesus. There's a condition to avoid perishing. And to preach the unconditional love of God gives, I believe, a false picture. Certainly, when you sit under a message like that, you are not in fear of a God who would allow people to go to hell. Think about that. If God loves people unconditionally, there's no reason for them to go to hell. If you actually go to the Bible, what is amazing is when people end up in hell, they're actually thrown there. They don't jump. No one sees the realities of the torments of hell and says, I want that. Some people preach that you go to hell because that's what you want. No, no, no. That's like saying... Um, I want cancer when you start smoking cigarettes. No, uh, actually, no, that's not what you want. You want cigarettes, and oftentimes the consequence is cancer, but you don't want the cancer. No one wants hell. Revelation 20, verse 15 says this, and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Have you ever read that? Thrown? Yeah, they, they don't willingly jump. Mark 9, 47. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes be thrown into hell. Let's go to Matthew chapter 13. What has this got to do with the love of God? Well, we've got to embrace all that the Bible teaches, and when we come to the final judgment, we don't see a God weeping and being sad for all eternity because the one he loves so much chose against him and he left them to their choice. No, uh, no, we've got to actually read through our Bibles, and when we believe something biblically, we're able to embrace all that the Bible teaches. Matthew chapter 13, beginning in verse 40, uh, in the parable of the weeds being explained, Jesus said these words, Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing 
of teeth. Matthew chapter 25. If you have a Bible, please uh, turn with me to Matthew chapter 25. Look at verse 30. At the end of the uh, parable of the talents, Jesus summed it up with these words. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Biblically, we need to grasp hold of concepts that seem far apart, but aren't. Romans 11.22 says, Behold then the kindness and the severity of God. You can get lopsided on either spectrum. The kindness, the goodness of God. If that's all that is stressed, you can end up with a non-biblical God in view. If all you hear about is the severity of God and eternal judgment and hell, you can end up with a God that is not the God of the Bible. To be biblical is to embrace both the kindness and the severity of God. Behold, look, see, both the kindness and the severity of God. So whatever we say about the kindness and the goodness of God, we should never forget the severity of God. Uh, We, when talking about the love of God, should never fail to understand that the Bible verses about the wrath of God are still in view. Uh, John chapter 3 verse 16 says that, that for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. But you know, the same chapter tells us of the anger of God. The same chapter that presents the love of God presents the anger and the wrath of God. You ever notice that? John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment that light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. The wrath of God abides on him. The sinner needs to know about the love of God and the anger of God. And they don't need to hear about unconditional love of God because it's not a biblical phrase. And I'm saying it's not a biblical concept. One of the reasons why many people reject the reformed and I believe biblical understanding of divine election is because of traditions associated with the love of God. The strong reaction of some against the doctrine of God's sovereignty in election is oftentimes due to a desire to defend what they believe is the message of the Bible on the love of God. They, they feel that God's attribute of love is in question or under attack. 
it's easy to see why this can become a very emotional issue for them. There are radio stations where the only filter is it must be positive and encouragement, uh, encouraging. Um, positive, encouraging, K-love. I want to be biblical, biblical, King's Church. <laughs> I want what I believe and what is proclaimed to be biblical. You see, there are verses that will never be the verse of the day on these radio stations. You know they have a verse of the day and several times during the day, if you listen, you'll hear that verse. The verse of the day is Romans this, verse that. And it's a positive, encouraging verse. Well, I'm not against positive, encouraging verses. Much of the Bible is positive and encouraging. But there are verses that tell you to flee from the wrath of God as well. Positive, encouraging. There was one preacher who was preaching, a young man who was attending a, a real liberal seminary, but there were preaching assignments, and he was preaching his first sermon. And the lecturer who was overseeing a course on preaching was very liberal, didn't believe in hell for, for, for sure. Well, the preacher, the young man, did believe in hell, and he preached one of the parables of Jesus that outlined hell and weeping and gnashing of teeth. And after the service, the lecturer walked to the student and said, you, you really need to be much more positive. That was, that was the opposite of that. You've got to be positive. Well, a week later, the preacher was preaching in another place, and the lecturer happened to be there as well, as the story goes. And the preacher said this, Now, last week, I was told I must be more positive in my preaching because I had said that there is a hell and people go there and I must be much more positive. So last week I said people are going to hell unless they repent. This week I want to say this. Unless you repent, you are positively going to hell. <laughs> I don't think the lecturer was too amused. You see, great care is needed to point people to the biblical text that can clarify what is being said. Not everyone seems to be open to examining their assumptions because these traditions that they have are so very strong. The tradition that God loves all people in exactly the same way is a strong tradition. I, I have to say for many years, that was the case in my own life, really. Many see no need to examine the texts of the Bible at all because in their minds, the concepts they have of the love of God equals what the Bible teaches. Again, the people who are most enslaved to their traditions are those who don't believe they have any. But to gain a truly biblical understanding, it is really vital to, to recognize our assumptions, recognize our perceptions, and then allow them to be held up to the light of Scripture to see if they are true. The Bible is true, to see if the Bible confirms those traditions. Not all traditions are bad if they're biblical. We're all prone 
to read into Scripture things that are not explicitly said and come away with traditions that are not actually taught by the Bible. That's why I asked the question at the beginning. And that's why a prayerful and open heart and mind is so essential if we're going to understand Scripture and allow Scripture to rule our thinking. There's a sober truth about the love of God. So, God as he really is, the gospel as it really is, if that's the biggest need of the church, I believe it is, it's also the biggest need in our world. And if we distort one, one of these are distorted, so is the other. So, I believe if you're a genuine Christian, you desire to know God as he really is. You want to enjoy him for all eternity. You want God, and that's my assumption. Now, love is one of the attributes of God. The Bible tells us on almost every page of the wonderful love of God. God is love. 1 John chapter 4, verse 8. What could be plainer than that? Well, actually, when we come to study the Bible, the doctrine of the love of God is far more complex than we may at first appreciate. What we need to do as Christians, theologians, Christians, and by the way, every Christian is a theologian, believes something about God. What we need to do is understand to be a theologian, recognize you are one, and desire to be a good one. Even atheists are theologians. They get the first question of theology wrong regarding the existence of God, but they are theologians. They believe something about God. And theology, theos is the first part of the word, logos is the second, theos, logos, theos means God, logos means word, it means, uh, the word theology means the study of God or the word about God. And everyone believes something about God. What we need to do as Christians is to take all that the Bible uh, teaches on a certain subject and make sense of it. It's a science. Theology was once called the queen of the sciences. It was understood a person really doesn't have a full education. He hasn't gained a full education with, without completing a course in theology. It's the queen of the sciences. Theology simply means the study of God. And everyone's a theologian in the sense that all people have some concept of God. So let's be good theologians. So where do we start with the love of God? We start by seeing where the love of God fits into the grand scheme of things. Here's what we know. God is. He is altogether perfect. He does not need to change. For to admit the need to change would be an admission that what once was was not entirely perfect. Now God is perfect in his attributes and he has been forever he always acts in conformity with who he is and therefore all that he does is perfect do you see that because he is perfect has been is and always will be everything that he does is the outworking of his perfection Deuteronomy 32, verses 3 and 4, Moses wrote these words, For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, Yahweh, ascribe 
greatness to our God, the rock. His work is perfect for all his ways are just. Do you hear that? His work is perfect for all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice, just and upright is he. So a basic truth to start with, a starting point, is that God has not changed in any way at all, not recently, not ever. God himself says, I am the Lord, I do not change. That's Malachi chapter 3 and verse 6. Yet in much of the church in our day, the professing church, many of God's characteristics or attributes have been deliberately obscured from view. The more popular attributes of God are still being displayed, such as his love, his grace, his mercy. Yet there's been an obscuring of certain other attributes of God, I believe deliberately, namely his holiness, his righteousness, his justice, his wrath, his sovereignty. That, ladies and gentlemen, is a problem. It's a big problem. Here's what I mean. At a buffet, you usually don't find, I've never found, buffet police (laughs) watching to see if we put every item on our plate, holding us accountable for doing so. No, 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 no. Uh, We're free to choose what type of food we'll eat, and we're free to choose what we'll leave to one side. We do so with impunity, for we face no legal action for passing by a certain meat or failing to put apple pie on our plate. But let's be clear. Hear this. God's attributes are not a buffet line of options. We're not invited to choose the attributes of God that we like best and leave the others. We have no right to say, I'll I'll give sovereignty a pass, but I'll take the love. God doesn't allow us to put some of his attributes to one side in our thinking. God is everything he says he is. To only believe in or to only emphasize certain of his characteristics is to invent our own God. There's a biblical name for that, idolatry. An idol can be fashioned and formed by the heart and mind just as much as by the hand. There's only one God, and any God that is not God, the God has revealed himself in Scripture, is a false God. Romans 5, 8 and 9 declares, But God demonstrates his own love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Even there, do you hear the love of God and the wrath of God? To be biblical, we must embrace both. Every sin man commits is an act of cosmic treason. And as a holy and as a just God, he is not only within his rights to be angry, angry against us, he must be. For to Treat sin lightly would mean that he was dismissive of his own holiness. And that is impossible. Such a thing is impossible. Sin must be punished or else God is not just. 
If God is not just, then God is not good. God is right to be full of wrath against his creatures. Yet, wrath is not the only attribute that God displays. He displays great mercy. In fact, God, hear this, God in his love sent his son into the world to save people from his own fierce wrath, which is against all that have sinned against him. May I say that again? God in his love sent his son into the world to save people from his own wrath, his fierce wrath. Behold, the goodness and severity of God. We've quoted it. If we focus on only one of these attributes to the exclusion of the other, we distort the biblical picture of God. We also distort the gospel. Some people have the idea that God was angry in the Old Testament and he's got over that. He's much more loving in the New. You've not read the New. You read the back of the book, the book of Revelation. Uh, Jesus doesn't come back and express his love to everybody. There's wrath, real wrath to come. Hebrews is New Testament, right? Hebrews 10.31 says, It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Imagine that as the verse of the day on the Christian radio station. Today's verse of the day, Hebrews 10.31, It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We'll be back right after these messages. <laughs> we laugh because it is comical. You know that would never happen. The ultimate calamity is to fall into the hands of the living God while not being in right standing with him. How does that concept square with God loves people unconditionally? Do you see it doesn't fit? You see, the ultimate calamity is to fall into the hands of the living God. That's the message. Not being right with him when you meet him. That's the ultimate calamity. Facing the full judgment and wrath of God for eternity, that's the greatest peril. Understanding that makes sense of the gospel. To be rescued from this is the greatest deliverance and the greatest salvation. You see, at the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ took all the sins of all those who would ever believe in him and absorbed the full punishment of the Father's wrath against sin. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the gospel. Repent and believe in this Savior, the Lord Jesus. He was the perfect sinless substitute who bore God's holy and just wrath, providing atonement and full propitiation Propitiation is a sacrifice that removes wrath. He did it for God's people. Wrath is only removed for believers. Right? For unbelievers, they stand under the wrath of God. We've quoted it. Let's quote it again. John 3.36 Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. 
if people remain defiant of God, they will face the wrath of God in its fullness. Jesus' return to earth will be marked by great joy and great fear. For although he's a shield to all who trust in him, his wrath will be poured out on all those who are not his subjects. Revelation 19, verses 11 through 16. Are you ready? It describes his fearful coming. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, many crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, many might be tempted to hear those words, read those words and say, I I'm going to stop right now. No, don't do that. You want to believe in the biblical God, right? Biblical Jesus. This is the biblical Jesus. See, this is not the usual picture the church portrays of Christ, but it's the biblical one. Unbelievers are not usually lying awake at night fearing of meeting God because all the church, all Christian radio, television, all the church has told them is God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. They have no concept of the need to flee from the wrath to come. They feel no urgency. They've been told that God loves them unconditionally, which to them means that God is very happy with the way they've turned out. Certainly, they don't feel the threat of divine judgment. Why would they? They've never heard of it. Yet the message of the gospel is this. All who place their trust in Christ as Savior and Lord are therefore saved by God, from God, for God. At one stage in church history, the church overemphasized the wrath and judgment of God I'm sure you've heard that as a preaching category, the hellfire and damnation preacher. Yet now the pendulum has fully swung the other way and all the people have ever heard about is a very shallow and unbiblical presentation of the love of God. Actually, biblically, hellfire and damnation preaching is biblical preaching. The Bible does talk about hellfire. The Bible does talk about damnation. It's not all it talks about, but it talks about that. It stresses that Jesus warned people about hellfire and damnation. Jesus did. I remember, as I say, reading through the book of Acts, and I made, I made special notice looking for what the preaching of the apostles was. What was it that they preached? What did they emphasize? What was the sum and substance of 
the apostolic preaching. I was shocked. Through that process of reading through the book of Acts, looking at that question, it revealed that, now wait for it, the apostles never mentioned the love of God, not even once. I must repeat myself. That's not to say that God doesn't love people. Far from it. But it was quite a shock to my thinking to realize that the love of God was not in view, especially as it's often the only thing in view in much of the church world today. In the New Testament, there's a great deal said about the love of God. Preacher, preach it. Christian, believe it. But the majority of what we read in the New Testament regarding the love of God is written in the epistles and is addressed to the church. It's addressed to the church. Those who are loved and chosen by God. We're going to look at this concept more. This is a good place to stop. I hope it whets your appetite for more on this theme of a biblical understanding of the love of God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the fact that you are all that you say you are. You're not improving. You're not getting over false concepts and learning from mistakes. You are perfect, always have been perfect, always will be. And everything you do is perfect. Everything you do is the outflow of who you are. We stand in awe of you. We behold your goodness, your kindness, and your severity, your judgment. And you're altogether good. You're altogether good in your love and in your justice, in your sovereignty and in your mercy, in all that you are. Help us as we walk through our Bibles to love you as you really are. We will know this for eternity, the God who really is, if we truly know you. Give us that desire to know you now in truth. Sanctify us in your truth. Your word is truth. We ask this, that you might be glorified, and we ask in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.